On this episode of the Vincast, I chat with David Bignall, Chief Winemaker for Oak Ridge Wines in the Yarra Valley. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Vincast. My name is James Gasebrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And of course, it is a a privilege to have you join me for another episode. Uh, Hopefully, you've been able to to listen to some of the new episodes that have released uh, recently. Um, It's been fantastic to uh, to bring a a diversity of guests, as always, um, with uh, some very interesting stories. But... um, uh, I, I'm really keen to hear more from you, and um, and, and so I'm uh, keep an eye on my social media at Intrepid Wino uh, or the the Vincast at the Vincast um, because I'm going to be just running a little bit of a promotion um, with uh, the opportunity to to win some prizes. So um, be sure to be following, um, and I'll be posting something very soon um, just to get some more interactivity going. But uh, uh, for this episode, um, someone I I've wanted to have for a long time, Dave Bicknell, uh, considered one of the finest winemakers, not just in the Yarra Valley where he's based at Oak Ridge Wines, but uh, really in Australia and has been recognized as such. So uh, it was great to find out his, uh, his background uh, and what brought him to Oak Ridge and, and his impu- input on the, uh, on the Yarra Valley. Uh, so I uh, hope you enjoy. Stick around till the end to find out how to get in touch with Dave and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Dave, thank you for joining me um, and making some time um, in these strange, strange days that we uh, are currently inhabiting. And, uh, and thanks for being a guest on the Vincast. Most welcome. Uh, as you may be aware, I start every episode asking my guests if they can remember if there was a particular um, incident um, that made them think about wine in a different way that potentially set them on a path to working in the wine industry. No, no, no. I don't think there, I don't think there is one uh, one one thing. But there, was, was there wine is a, was wine around you when you were younger, or was it something that you kind of like? A, it was a, a vocation you kind of fell into later on. No, no. I'm I'm a total outsider to the industry, um, which has always I think given me a bit of a chip on my shoulder <laughs> uh, because uh, you know I'm, I'm not an inheritor. Um, and I don't come from a background. In fact, my, uh, my background is, is significantly different because, uh, my family were merchant seamen. So I'm the first of, I think, six, seven, eight generations that, um, didn't go to sea. And my father was a, a master mariner and ship's captain. Uh, went to sea during the second world war, got torpedoed twice, survived. Wow. And, and um, because he, he basically travelled the world, you know, before he was even 20, uh, he, he saw lots of different things. And one of the things that he saw and he liked was wine. So he spent a lot of time uh, in the coastal trade, really from Argentina up to, up to the UK. 
and from the UK through um, through Southern Europe, and he got a taste for wine. And so, um, as a Scotsman, he he always drank whiskey, but he never really was never really a beer drinker, and he always enjoyed drinking wine. And so, when we grew up, um, we had wine on the table every night. And it was just part of everyday life. And there's uh, there's photos in albums at home of us as kids having, you know, dilute water and wine on special occasions. And it was just something that was there every day. And um, it, it didn't really set me on a path, but it was something that was an everyday, an everyday thing for us and our family. It was an osmosis. And the, yeah, yeah, it, it was just it was there and. Um, you know, when when we moved when we moved out to Australia, so you know, I'm you know a classic immigrant. Um, um, Dad loved it because wine was plentiful and really cheap, and and often much better quality than you know than he'd probably probably been buying in the UK at that time. So, um, so he 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 loved it. Um, so you're from Scottish stock. Yeah, yeah. Where, yeah. Which which part um, of Scotland does uh, does your family have? Well, it, the the family tree is really quite divided into two. So, um, on my mother's side of the family, um, they're all from the the northeast corner. So Wick um, and the Orkney Islands. So we we've we've actually traced that side of the family back to about fourteen sixty on the Orkney Islands. And is then that a, is that above Inverness? That's above. Oh yeah, that's it's above Scotland, above the mainland. Well, right, yeah, on okay. Top of, on the top of the northeast corner. Wow. So probably a reasonably strong Scandinavian influence there as well. Sure. Uh, so I've got the blue eyes and the and the rough nails that the Scandi <laughs> seem to have. Um, on Dad's side of the family, it's it's a bit more mixed, and um, they they come from again right back to. Um, not not as far back, probably the fifteen eighties. I think on Dad's side of the family, we trace back to to the borders of Scotland. But then a significant part of the family tree, and where the name actually comes from, is from Somerset in England. So um, there's a place called Bicken Hall, and so they were farmers there for a couple of hundred years before before um, my great 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 grandfather Ellis, uh, Ellis Bicknell, went, went to sea as a merchant seaman. And then there's a whole line of, uh, uh, on that family side of um, merchant navy. Right. Uh, so so um, farmers and um, farmers and crofters and um, mostly out of Scotland and Somerset. Oh, really? So, um, yeah, how so how anyway, were you when, when the family migrated out to Australia and was there a reason that they were coming to Australia? Uh, yeah, very much so. So dad, his entire career was in, in either um, the Merchant Navy or with companies in shipping. And so he came out to run the, um, the fleet of the Australian National Line, um, you know, which was, you know, once quite an important um, you know, entity for, for trading around Australia and internationally as well. So he took a job out here. He, he'd worked for a company in, in the UK for about 25 years and he, he got sick of them and this job came up in Australia and 
next minute we um, we were on a plane and uh, we were flying out here and you know I strongly recall um, we stopped in Bahrain and um, seeing three Concords sitting on the tarmac there in Bahrain before we came out here and then one of them was in in Sydney before we landed um, <laughs> so so I was uh, I was eight years old when I came out and went through all the usual stuff you know got bullied at school for talking differently I've obviously lost my accent my sister older still has a remnant and so does my older brother and my mother most people think she just got off the boat but uh, we've been here for uh, we've been here for a long time now where did your this, family this settle initially uh, we came to Melbourne yeah okay. we came to Melbourne and and mum still lives in Melbourne and so does uh, well, so do both my brothers and my sister uh-huh. Uh, but we don't have any, we don't have any other, uh, we didn't have until about 10 years ago, any other relatives in this country. And a cousin now lives in Sydney as, as well. Wow. Um, and, and so it sounds like um, they very much brought kind of their um, way of, uh, of doing things, a way of being in the world um, to, to Melbourne and, and, you know, enjoying uh, you know, some wine, some whiskey, that kind of thing. And some the trade that your dad was in probably, you know, um, transportation would have um, had access. But like, I suppose yeah, well, at, at that time, there, there wasn't, there probably wouldn't have been a lot of diversity, whether it be kind of food or, 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 or beverage. Uh, it was just sort of really kicking off. And it was one thing that we all did whenever there was a, you know, a birthday, anything significant, we would go out for dinner, you know, um, my parents were, you know, big entertainers as well. There was always people at the table on Sundays, extra people. Mm-hmm. Um, they were forever having dinner parties and entertaining other people. And, um, you know, dad traveled a lot to Japan. Um, you know, a lot of it was to do with shipbuilding as well as trade. Mm. And, um, you know, there was a Japanese family that we became friends with that, um, even though dad died a number of years ago, that, they've kept in touch and their, their, their daughter and granddaughter keep in touch with mum, you know, a couple of times every year and a very traditional Japanese family. So um, the first time he came to my parents' house, he was, he was just, uh, you know, blown away that um, he would be invited to somebody's house. You know, it's not a, not a the sort of the done thing in Japan, but it's such a, you know, it's part of our normal life somebody's out here from another country will come around and have dinner. That's, that's so true. That is actually, and it's something that I kind of didn't think about when I was living in Japan as a 16, 17 year old, you know, because we just think of that as being quite normal. Like you know, it, you're more likely to invite someone to, into your home than you are to sort of take someone out. Whereas in, in Japan, potentially be, uh, also because people tend to live in smaller um, houses or apartments in Japan. So it's not necessarily, you don't want to entertain, but yeah, you do tend to sort of take someone out for dinner and, and, and pay for their dinner or something like that. and um, invite yeah, them into their yeah. home. Um, well, we, we quickly, we quickly embraced the, uh, the Australian sort of ethic. It of, sounds like it. Yeah. Of cooking the shit out of things on the barbecue and spending all day in the pool and, you know, just, you know, regular stuff. Um, because it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that in the UK for us, I don't think. And that, yeah, and that's in spite of not knowing anyone out here. It sounds like your family were very 
you know, keen to kind of embrace the community and, and make friends and stuff like that, that, that hospitable nature um, was something that they embraced. Yeah, well, there was, you know, it, it never takes long for connections to strike up. And of course, you know, the, the primary school that we, we went to, you know, there was a funny looking kid there who, you know, I became friends with. And of course, it turned out that his father was, his, his whole family was Scottish as well. And, and his father had been in the Merchant Navy. And, you know, all of a sudden there's, a, you know, it's, it's more community than isolation. Mm. But, I, you know, I vividly recall, uh, you know, when we first came out, how, how isolating it was um, as young children to have lost all your friends and all of your, your extended family. Um, it, for you, for your dad being us, on the move as far as, you know, his, his work it probably wouldn't have been as difficult to kind of relocate. No, but, no. yeah, for you guys, it would have been really rough. He, he found it easy. I mean, because he, he was spending you know, two, three, four months a year in Japan and flying around the world and, you know, having a great old time. Um, I think he did, you know, he worked hard and, uh, you know, and he, in, he enjoyed the travel as well. So if you were, if you were the first of, uh, you know, many generations that wasn't going to end up in the same kind of career path, did you have any ideas, you know, in your teens about kind of what you wanted to do vocationally? No, I was just a regular teenager, absolutely clueless. And, um, you know, and all I ever wanted to do was uh, play sport. So I was pretty good at uh, lots of things, uh, lots of sports, you know, swimming and running and football. And, and, uh, and I thought that's what I would, I would ultimately do, that I would, I'd hit it somewhere um, with one of those sports and, and maybe make a living out of it. And um, we were on holidays when I was, I think, about 15. And, uh, and I managed to um, quite badly break one of my legs, um, playing cricket of all things. And, um, <laughs> and I ended up in plaster for, um, you know, thigh length plaster for six months. Oh, God. And, and I could never kick or run quite as good ever again and things all went pear-shaped so you know i became this kind of morose clueless teenager um and you know went badly at school and really Uh, you know sort of fell off the rails and um and it, it was a little sort of period on unemployment benefits as a 16 year old without any money without any transport without any future that I suddenly thought, well, if I don't go back to school and finish this, I'm not going to go anywhere. And I still had no idea what I was going to do. And, and I went back to school and, and got through. And one of the kids I went to school with, um, his mother was um, one of the uh, charge nurses at Prince Henry's Hospital in Melbourne. And, and I'd, I'd done sort of sciences mostly and I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's a thing. And so the next thing I enrolled and got accepted into Prince Henry's Hospital and um, became a registered nurse. Wow, okay. So studied for three years, um, uh, wore my leftist unionism on my sleeve because we spent three months on strike 
during the uh, the nurses strike during the 80s yeah um which is sort of relevant now at the moment i think that uh, people are starting to see how important um healthcare workers are in this country for for for, for keeping things moving and keeping people alive and um at that point there was uh there wasn't a lot of value put on nurses, you know, if you recall, or well, you may or may not, but the, the government didn't want to give nurses any money whatsoever. Mm. Uh, didn't want to give them any pay rise. And so we, you know, we were on strike for three months, which was pretty hard. Uh, and I did the nursing thing and I, I um, worked there at Prince Henry's for, you know, about four years, four and a half years or so, and had sort of thought, well, I need more now. I need to do something else. And I'd actually in, enrolled to become an ambulance driver. And um, a lot of the critical care, you know, typical kind of male thing, all the action, you know, is something you want to get involved in. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll apply for the MICA um, ambulance driving and, and do that. And before anything happened, uh, a good mate of mine said, oh, look, uh, I'm going to head over to Europe for a couple of months and travel around. And um, so this was in sort of 89. And um, in 1990, so sort of early 1990, went over to Europe. Of course, the other thing was uh, there was a World Cup on. So In, uh, uh, in Italy? In, in Italy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, of course, Scotland, Scotland were in. And I had a cousin who lived in, in Modena in Italy. So I was in touch with him and, and he said, well, you know, anytime you want to come, Davy boy, come and stay as long as you like. And so, you know, I had a year over there, had the World Cup, travelled around Europe. And I don't know what the moment was, but um, it may well just, it may well have been, I was in Hungary in the south in um, this sort of town up in the hills called uh, Pesh, P-E-C-S. And, um, and I was with this mate of mine and we, there was this fantastic hotel around the corner from where we were staying on this terrace overlooking this valley and it was gorgeous and warm and, you know, and it was a bit of the uh, Withnall and I sort of thing that we... Like we we bought the most expensive and fantastic wines on the wine list because I want, I want so the cheap. finest. I want the finest wines, no finest, demand. No, no demand. Yeah, and we sat on this terrace and got absolutely mullered and um, drank all these wines. And, and and I think that was one of those things. Like you know, how good is this? And, mm. and how good are these wines? I can't even remember what they were. And um, later that year. Uh, the old man said he was going to be in London on business. So I thought I'd catch up with him. And by, by that point, I'd been sleeping under bridges virtually because I'd run out of money and, um, and I'd been working at a youth hostel in Ireland. And, and I caught up with him in London and he'd lived in London uh, and worked for some period. And we had this awesome day walking around London and went to Ronnie Scott's and went to Wheeler's, the famous fish restaurant and all these haunts that he used to go to in the late forties and early fifties. And they were all still there. And he said, you know, what are you going to do when you get home? And I said, I'm going to go and study winemaking. And he said, what are you, what are you talking about? Said, <laughs> Where did that come from? 
Yeah, he said, what about the, the ambulance thing? And I said, I said, oh, I think I think I actually need to make something. And, I, and he said, well, what do you know about wine? And I said, probably as much as you do. I like it. <laughs> he said, well, I, <laughs> it was pretty much it. And, um, and, he, and he basically told me I was mad in, you know, sort of fruitier language. And um, <laughs> anyway, I, I sort of came back that year and, um, and I applied to um, Roseworthy and got in. And at that point, I had, a, I had a bag of some shitty old clothes and that was about it. And I um, got on a train and, um, and then hitchhiked out of Roseworthy and, and I'd never, ever nursed again. Wow. Even though it was on offer to work shifts in the local hospital out of Gawler. And I just thought, no, I'm going to, I'm just going to do something else. Um, and, and that was it. Once I was at Roseworthy, I was, I was hooked and, um, you know, washed dishes, worked for the faculty, worked in cellar doors, um, and just worked my way through, through uni. And, um, and, you know, here we are, you know, sort of nearly three decades later. Mm. So there was something about um, that, that time you spent in Europe and uh, kind of the, the simplicity, the purity of um, being in situ and, and just enjoying kind of the experience of life and eating, drinking, you know, even with, as you say, and you know, having run out of money, it's kind of, um, there is great beauty and, and, and pleasure in that experience. And, and that must've kind of triggered something in you that, you, you know, you not only did you want to create something, but this was something that you, you enjoyed and you, did you kind of think about, Oh, I, I like this idea of being able to give people pleasure, making something that, you know, they enjoy and it's, you know, the, 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 the experiential thing. Uh, I think initially it was more like, uh, I like to have a good time. Hmm. And uh, and if you if you talk to anyone that knows me really well in the industry, um, I I like to have a good time, and and I've been having a good time for a long time. Um, I, th- I think if stopped. if you don't like to have a good time, you're <laughs> in it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah, uh, but even when I looked, even back in the nursing days, I mean, I I used to I used to go out every night of the week. You know, even when I was at school, I used to go out every night of the week if I could. Um, I, I think the other, the other key, the other little bit of reason that was in here, and there was a bit of knowledge from somebody else that, that along the way. So another guy that I was, um, I started nursing with, he came from, um, he came from Albury and, and he was into wine as well. We used to buy a bit of wine when we were, so we would have been, oh, 19, 20 or so. And we would go to regions and buy wine, and um, and he was he was the one that I think perhaps planted the you know the important seed because he said, "Did you know you can actually study winemaking?" Right. Okay. And and like a lot of people, it was like, "You're fucking kidding, aren't you? Mm. You can study winemaking? Is that a thing?" And um, and, and I suppose at that we, at that time like Australia was in a, a quite a very serious transitional period where, you know, the eighties, there was starting to be that expansion that really took off in the nineties. And so there probably was a demand from 
certain institutions like Roseworthy or Charles Sturt for more winemakers. You know, there was probably a lot of, like you were talking about earlier, that inheritance or that, you know, that, um, 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 well, the generational yeah, transfer the generation, was a yeah. big part. Of, yeah, a big part of what happened, and um, and I guess we were in that sort of first kind of wave of, you know, really sort of outside the industry, outside the food industry, whatever that sort of came in, and um, you know, Charles Sturt had been going for a few years at that point as well. Um, so I think it was a little bit different. The doors were starting to open a little bit, but of course, you know, when we finished. The country was in recession, you know, the yeah, recession we had to have. We had to have, and uh, and I and I think there was only there was only about two of us out of our group that actually two or three of us that took on full time jobs. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was it was challenging. So when we finished, it was you know there was a lot of vintage work for a lot of people. Um, whereas you know I was one of the the lucky ones that. Um, you know, I'd scored a job, and um, you know, and it, uh, I guess it changed changed me forever. I think one of the important things as well is the fact that you'd kind of been working in a different career path, and you'd gone overseas and and, and experienced it and stuff. So you were you were very much choosing for all the right reasons that this was something you wanted to do, rather than finishing matriculation and and going straight into something like i think that was even though i i did my arts degree for quite personal reasons it was just stuff that i was interested in i didn't necessarily have an idea about what i wanted to do in terms of of a career um i i, I still kind of as not uncommon got a bit burnt out by the third year and was starting to lose interest whereas if i had have gone away and and worked somewhere else i probably might might have got into wine a lot sooner you know and studied that potentially yeah look you're never quite sure where you're going to land on these things that's that's the thing i mean one of the things that um we've been really keen to do with um because we've got three three teenage children is, is to keep their mind open to the whole world and the opportunities that are out there you know i mean you know, classic thing, you know, when, when people, when, when kids are growing up and they've got to do work experience, you know, what are they going to do? Mm. And, you know, we're, we're forever saying to them, oh, look, you know, you should, you know, see if you can work in a national park or, you know, I can contact somebody and, you know, you could probably get on a, a passage on a ship somewhere to the Antarctica or something, or you could, you know. Not so you much know, work experience, but more life experience life experience i mean it's the life experience that drives things you know i mean you know the the, the other side of the coin is you know at roseworthy there were kids who had come from you know wine making backgrounds and they were just they were just shit house at it and mm. and they couldn't do the study and they really weren't that interested it's like they were going through the motions more, more of an obligation rather than a passion yeah family obligation yeah and that's like yeah, I, I, I even when I was doing the the master's degree with Adelaide Uni, um, you know, around two thousand eight, two thousand ten, I I had people, you know, that were from multi generational wine families, and they they couldn't give a fuck about it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, I, I found I found my people. That was the important thing. I found my people. So you and and you clearly embraced it and 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 wanted to make the most of it and. 
Um, where were you getting other vintage experience whilst you were studying um, or, or would that come sort of once you'd finished your studies? Uh, well, we, we had to go and do a, a vintage uh, when we were still studying. And, um, and I wrote to all sorts of people uh, and, and I was pretty keen to, um, to go and work in, in the Yarra Valley um, at St Hubert's. And, and Brian Fletcher was the winemaker at the time. And, you know, because I used to go out to the valley and buy wines. I mean, I remember looking in the real estate in Yarra Glen and looking at the price of land back in, you know, sort of 85, 86. Mm. Wow, five, $500 an acre. Uh, sorry, yeah, $500 an acre, the price of land. I thought, Jesus, it's expensive out here. It's now 30000 um, But <laughs> Because that, because I mean, that was that was sort of post, you know, Yarra Yering and Mount Mary and and the, the reemergence of yeah, it wasn't Yering Bird, it was, but it, it was just as Domain Chandon was starting, to, you know, to move in, and then De Bordley, and that was when the Yarra Valley really started to take off. Yeah, it was at the end of the eighties it took off, and and it was really very small before then. Anyway, I uh, I had an interview with Brian Fletcher and. Um, and tasted wine and, you know, talked about things. And he said, yeah, yeah, of course, you've got a vintage job here. Um, we, there were four of us had driven over from South Australia to go to an, an ASVO conference. And, um, and uh, they were all crashing at my folks' place. Um, and uh, anyway, we, they all came out with me to the valley and sort of hung around and, um, and we did that. And then I said, look, I've written to uh, this other company up the road. Let's go up there as well. And that was to Bortley. Mm. And, and I went up there and, um, and Steve took us around the cellar and, you know, chat, chat, chat. And, of course, it turned out that um, one of the guys I was uh, up there with and studying with, uh, who you know um, pretty well as well, Steve Flamsteed, <laughs> and we we because we shared a house at college together for for three years, so mm. uh, we've been you know pretty close for a long time now. Anyway, Steve had worked uh, in this little place in Beaujolais, and that was the thing that had got him into wine. And and of course, Steve knew the guy that owned the chateau in Beaujolais because he used to come out here and sell barrels, and there were those barrels in the cellar. And and we I remember sitting on the lawn there and. Uh, and you know, we Steve just kept on going off and getting bottles of wine and try this and try that, try this, try that. And then the next thing, let's go up to the restaurant and open something else. And, um, the restaurant shut, we went up, sat on the balcony, and, and he's opening all these bottles. And the four of us are all there, and we're you know, we're just we're getting laced. And um, so it sounds like you're back, you back in the south of Hungary, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that. And um, and all of a sudden, the, you know, the phone rings and Steve goes, oh, I've got to go. Um, Leanne's about to have a baby, so she's in hospital. I've got to go. Um, just um, take all the bottles with you and just pull the door on the way out. Oh, <laughs> by the way, um, yeah, yeah, you've got a job. Um, as soon as you finish um, studying this year, and that was in our second year, um, you can come in and start working. So... Um, so in November 92, I started working for, for the de Bortley family. Yeah. Gave, gave some Hubert's the flick because I thought, well, it's going to be a, it's going to be an absolute fucking riot up at de Bortley if you sit around on the lawn all day drinking, you know, all these bottles of wine. It's, it's, it's just going to be a big party. Have a good time. Just wanted to have a good time. Yeah. 
Well, so, we, we did, but uh, we worked hard as well. Work hard and to play the hard. Thing just, just like just like just nurses, they work off. hard and they play hard. Yeah, yeah. So, and I did the vintage up there in '93, and um, I was, you know, whenever I had breaks, I'd go back and work for them as well. And they just said, as soon as you're done, there's a full time job for you. Um, and that was fantastic, you know, to have that security. And um, and then when I started, um, you know, you know, properly. Um, there was a bit of a, um, a change up in Griffin where, you know, one of the winemakers had left just before vintage and left them in a bit of a hole. So they said, how do you feel about going up to Griffith and, um, and working up there and... Um, Making noble wine. And, and, yeah, and looking after all the whites and um, go through vintage and... You know, when we get into March, come back down to the hour and work and do vintage there. And so um, in 94, I um, uh, made the whites up in Griffith and um, they finished, you know, reasonably early in that year, came down in March and we started in March in the Yarra. And I'd, I'd sort of said that I wanted to go over and work in France and that's no problem. I'd sorted a job out for myself and... Um, Went over to Burgundy and worked a vintage there, and then uh, I helped them with their their viticultural research and their post vintage stuff. So I was there for three or four months working at um, Louis Latour in Alos Corton. Wow! And and when that came to an end, um, you know, I, I, I rang Flamo up because I knew he was he was in France and he was um, working a vintage up, going to work a vintage in Alsace, and he said, "Oh, look, there's." plenty of work up here as well. So I jumped on a train and went up to Alsace and worked um, the vintage up there as well for um, uh, Paul Blanc in Kinsheim. Cool. So it was a f- four vintage year, you know, so it was uh, pretty full on. And then I went back to um, went back to France in 95 and worked in that place in Beaujolais and made brewery and coat the brewery. And, uh, you know, it was, the sports were just great sports in in terms of um, you know fast tracking me and um, letting me do those things, but you know being pretty much rooted into the Yarra Valley and becoming part of the community. But clearly, that De Bordoli does attract a pretty incredible uh, quality of um, you know winemakers. Like you look at sort of the people who are at the upper echelons, not just in the Yarra Valley but in other regions. Um, a lot of them have worked, um, you know, under Steve at De Bordoli in the Yarra Valley. So there, there is something pretty special about um, that place and that family that it does just really foster some incredible talent in, in, in the industry. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a real hub. And, you know, a lot of that is down to Steve and Leanne and how they've, you know, guided the property down here over the years. And the, the, the caliber of people, I guess, that they selected to work there. I mean, the, you know, you also have some duds, but, um, you know, there's a whole string of people who, who worked there in one of those hubs because it was um, very progressive in what it was trying to do. You know, it was, and Steve was always willing to, to you know, take chances and risk and experiment with all sorts of different things. And, you know, that, that really attracts those people because, um, you know, you, you get to learn about, you know, the mechanics of how a business works as well and how a seller works. And, 
um, and yet there's always you know different exciting things that are you know that are that are going on and being pushed and um, and it seems like they encourage the people that work for them to kind of hey challenge us you know give us give us other ideas yeah, yeah. explore things if you know we want we want the best we, we pick we, we pick people to to you know to improve things however they can yeah look i, re- I remember um it was an end of vintage do we had and it must have been in uh, around about 94 or 95 and we went to the whole vintage crew um down to stokehouse um in melbourne and we had lunch there and drank lots of fabulous wines and then uh steve and and uh, the late great dr david slingsby smith who was on the winemaking team there, myself, we, we went out and we went to bars and we had this, you know, big night down in St Kilda and, and, um, and the next, the following month, that was on a Friday night, I think. And on, on the following Monday morning, I, I got summoned into the office to talk to Steve about um, all the criticisms I've made about our winemaking that <laughs> night when we were out you know, <laughs> drinking all these bars. And I've, and I, I was a bit sort of blank. It's like, I can't remember half of what was going on. And they, and they could m- remember quite clearly, and they obviously, you know, Stephen Singers took it quite personally that um, that even from within the team, you know, I was fairly critical about a number of, a number of you know, winemaking aspects that we were doing. But, they were, you know, they were right on top of it. So, you know, it was about lesson learning as well and and having your eyes open to things. So... You know, we used to go to a lot of tastings. We used to buy a lot of wine. We used to taste a lot of wine as well. Um, and, and it, you know, it, it was almost, I won't say competitive, but it was competitive in that we were always looking for something else, what another aspect, another, you know, what else can we add to our knowledge about winemaking um, to improve what we do? So it was, you know, it was a great place to work. Yeah, and you know, you're encouraged to always be hungry and be chasing. It's like, you know, what's the new thing? And like and that's that's the way I always have viewed De Bordley, uh, particularly in the Yarra Valley and you know, the way they've um you know thrown themselves into alternative varieties as well and planting stuff in the Yarra Valley and looking at other regions as well. How long did you end yeah, up working yeah, at De Bordley? Uh in the end it was nearly nine years I was there. And um uh, you know, and there was a, a whole progression of people who came through during that period, you know. Uh, Marco Callahan, who's now a, you know, a director at WineNet, he he was a, you know, a vintage hand for a year. And uh, who else came in? Um, Bill came in, I think, at about 98 or 99. Oh, no, not that, sorry, 2008, 2009. Decades, they just go past. <laughs> um, he was there. Paul Bridgman, um, he came in and sort of took over, you know, my role when I left to Bortz. He came in in about 2000 or 2001. Timo came in in, uh, in I think, 2008 as well and worked there for a number of years in the cellar with us. So there was this whole whole group of, uh, you know, people who were all, you know, sort of ambitious and intelligent and really, you know, wanting to, to create, you know, something good, something special, something, something really nice to, you know, to drink and talk about. And then they took, you know, inspiration into, you know, subsequent projects. Yeah. Yeah. 
Where, where, so, where did you go after De Bordoli? Uh Well, the, the job came up at um, the job came up at Oak Ridge, and and I was almost a, a little bit embarrassed about sort of going over there because I I, I really did like working there at Debords and you know basically you know taking on the running of the cellar and. Uh, so it was a, a difficult move, and it affected my relationship with Stephen Leanne for a number of years, uh, because I think they felt a little bit maybe betrayed to a degree that I was leaving. So I went over to Oak Ridge, and would it have I'm made a difference if it was in a different region? Oh, probably. I mean, yeah, I think it would have. It would have been easier. But one of the things when I went over there, and I, you know, I remember saying to Steve, is that I've got no interest in hitting on any of your growers or doing any of these things. I, you know, it's not what I'm about. It's just, you know, it's an opportunity for me to, to really take charge of something and, and try and do something. And, and I guess I was pretty naive about where Oak Ridge was at that point because um, it, it, it had sold and Evans and Tate had, had bought it. And there'd been a real kind of period of decline in that sort of uh, in-between time where, you know, the um, original winemaker, you know, from the original family had moved on. It was being run from Western Australia um, and and things were all sort of going pear-shaped. So it was in a bit of a state, really, when I moved over there. And... Um, I remember the first day there, I was there for about 15 hours and and I, I got home that night and, uh, you know, Nikki said to me, well, how was it? And I said, I think I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I think I've made a terrible mistake. Mm. It's in a lot worse condition than I thought. I, a lot of stuff just doesn't even work. And um, anyway... You know, eighteen years or so later, I'm still there, and um, we've kind of we've made it work. Even though I've, you know, managed to get through that corporate side with Evans and Tate, where there was um, all sorts of promises, and there wasn't a huge amount of delivery on what happened. It was, mm. it, it seemed like it was, uh, you know, hand to hand combat every day of every week of every year for a lot of years. Um, you know, trying to trying to turn the place around, but I, I think that the, the grounding I had at, at Debord's had really sort of helped me um, to understand where and how we might make wine and where we might go with things. So I steered clear of uh, anything to do with Debord's, and um, we really sort of focused on a, a smaller part of the valley, apart from vineyard around. Um, you know, Oak Ridge really, and and things just kind of evolved. And then, you know, when Evans and Tate fell over, that was another sort of major blow. But I think by by that time we had a really we had a really good team. We had a really good team, um, you know, in the winery, and um, we had a good team in the front of house, and. You know, we had this sort of little meeting because we went into receiver managership, which was fairly difficult. Mm. Um, because because when when the receivers come in, it, it, it's a bit like the SWAT team coming in. You know, and um, and I, I guess they're used to a lot of open hostility when 
when somebody else comes in and, and takes charge of the business and tells you what you can't do more than anything else. And we were really nice to them. Anyway, we had a staff meeting um, away from all of them. And I just said, look, you know, anyone, anyone who doesn't want to stay, that's fine. I understand the insecurity and um, I'll help you find a job somewhere else. And those who are willing to stay, well, well I'm staying. And, and I'll fight for you here as well. So um, we only lost one person out of the whole sort of business at that point, mm. which was kind of good because it, you know, that mentally we were all on the same place. We were in the same place and we were, we, you know, we were going to fight for, fight for Oak Ridge, which was really good. And, um, um, you know, the new owners came in who are still the owners now and, you know, they, they supported us really well. And, um, and allowed us to get on. The most important thing was, you know, allowing us to get on with a, a winemaking program where we, we'd been making some really big strides. And so it was really gratifying. But uh, like I said, it still seems like years later, it, it's still been hand-to-hand combat mm. the whole time to, to make it all work. So when this was all happening, this is sort of mid to late 2000s? Uh, so changed ownership end of 2006, early 2007. And then yeah. of course we went straight into that horrendous, you know, end of drought 2007, you know, summer where, um, you know, we had fire, we had hail, mm. we had frost. And then the, the, then the icing on the cake was, um, you know, they found phylloxera in the valley. So it was like the, and, the and four and horsemen of the apocalypse came in. That That's when I, started working at Chandon and so I, you know, we were neighbors essentially. Um, and at that point, the Yarra Valley was pretty well developed. You know, you had, uh, you know, outsiders who were coming in and setting things up. Um, you know, Phil Sexton, for example, coming over from WA, you had, you know, fairly entrenched families, um, like weren't on estate and several estate and whatnot. Um, and particularly in that kind of, what we'd consider the Valley floor area was fairly well developed and a fairly robust wine tourism thing, but there were sort of pockets of the Yarra Valley that were still not as well known and well developed, you know, like those upper Yarra areas. Um, is, is that sort of, was, was that, how did you kind of approach setting Oak Ridge apart from um, that kind of well-developed wine region that was the Yarra Valley at that time? Um, well, I, again, one, one of the things I'd seen at DB's was that um, there was some fruit from a particular vineyard that came in and to me it just looked and tasted, you know, quite different and was quite special and was better than anything that we were growing on the site there. It was probably one of the criticisms that got me into trouble, hmm. you know, that, that there was, there was a, a grower that we were getting fruit from where, you know, that I thought was infinitely better than anything that we had. And that really pissed Steve off, I think. Hmm. Um, but um, I think if you fast forward today to, to what that vineyard was, well, that vineyard was Lasatia Park um, up at Wurri Yalloc. Yep. And they now own that vineyard. You know, yeah. it took them a long time to buy it. But there, for me, there was something in that. And, um, and so when I went over to Oak Ridge, one of the things was that, 
the fruit resource was was very much from the southern side of the valley. So mm. there was a number of vineyards there, the old Northridge Vineyard, uh, Tibiburra up at Yellingbow, and, uh, and um, Stringybuck Creek over at um, uh, Sylvan. So there was some really sort of cool pockets that, that were in there. And we started to have, you know, a lot of success with those, with some of those vineyards, um, just in terms of the winemaking. And so that, you know, I could see there was a real kind of focus there. And just with those different vineyards, we, you know, we, we could really start to see and understand the differences that these wines, you know, after a year of winemaking, what they looked and tasted like. And, and you know, that sort of experience in Burgundy where, you know, it's second nature to, to, to look at, you know, different plots of land from different parts of, you know, the coat and... And it, and and it's a it's a given that they they taste different, you know. If they're vinified the same way, they 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 will always taste different, and they they should speak of, you know, where they come from. And and that was a concept, you know, that you know been kicking down the road in Burgundy for a couple of thousand years. Yet it wasn't something that was really explored in this country, so it became a very logical step to. Um, to you know, just a clear thinking exercise. Well, well, surely we've got the ability to do something like that as well. That instead of making, you know, putting it all together and making one wine, mm. let's, you know, let's keep them apart and 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 see where these wines go. And you know, and it, you know, the whole export kind of project, you know, really started in you know in two thousand and three, two thousand and four. You know, that was I'd only been there for a year or eighteen months, and we started to 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 get this idea about um, vineyard provenance. Um, you know, and um, site expression, I guess, and and that's something that we've been you know continuing to develop in in over all those years. And that was something you know, that really like was quite mind-boggling for me, even in my sort of infancy in the wine industry, how selections were still being made in the cellar after the fact where, oh, you reserve wine. It's like, it's the barrel selection. And then, you know, you, you blend everything else together and that's your estate wine. Even if that wasn't from an estate, it was like, you know, the house wine, the, the concept of, you know, and, and even when I was working at Chandon, the, the few wines more so on the sparkling um, portfolio, that were of single vineyard expression, I found vastly more interesting. And the fact that they wouldn't necessarily bottle that wine, every vintage was a vintage specific thing. Um, and I think that was certainly something that I saw with Oak Ridge. And, and, and even when Mac Forbes was kind of getting started with his project, it, it still seemed kind of quite um, unusual to sort of have more of that focus. Now we kind of take it for granted and it's sort of, it seems silly to not be doing, uh, you know, single vineyard wines. Yeah, look, it's, it's an interesting thing because if you look at the food industry, you know, arguably the most important aspect in the entire food industry at the moment is, is around provenance. Mm. Where, where it's come from and, and who grow, grew it and under what terms and conditions. And, um, 
it's something that's actually been implied in winemaking, you know, pretty much forever. But it's never really, particularly in this country, it hasn't been marketed very well. Because probably the industry has been uh, so dominated by publicly listed companies mm-hmm. um, with brands rather than, um, you know, vineyards Bean with numbers. wines of, of personality, mm. you know. And that, that's probably maybe not, not so true in some of the bits and pieces out of the Hunter and, and, and bits and pieces in the Barossa as well with the Henschkes and so forth, with, you know, generational changes like that. But the majority of the industry has been about, you know, a wine. Um, Consistency, quality, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Shaving a price point. Metronomic consistency, which, Mm -hmm. which is there. And I mean, if you look at somebody like, uh, you know, like with Wynn's Coonawarra Cab, you know, the metronomic consistency has been there for my entire life. Um, but it, again, and it's not that it's a bad wine. It, it, like for what it is, it is a pretty amazing no, no. product. It, but it's a good, it's a good wine, but it's a better product now. And there are better wines that they're making because they've actually started to, you know, to to, to tease out those threads of um, of their resource that are superior. And it's one of these things that to look at the parts rather know, than the sum. Yeah, that you know, when you get enough experience um, in the vineyard, and um, you know, in terms of site selection, and I mean, there's a lot more science that goes behind it now. When you start to find these things, um, it, it's a bit of a revelation, and um, you know, it really it, it's quite an exciting sort of project, and it's really it's it's one making you know geekiness gone gone crazy um, to a degree. Um, and it doesn't necessarily work financially, but, um, and, and you're never going to find all the answers with this stuff. Again, this is, you know, this is the work of, um, you know, generations rather mm. than, you know, a person. Um, but, you know, it, it's like slowly putting a jigsaw piece, a uh, jigsaw puzzle together, you know, just piece by piece. And, and that's still quite an exciting project for us that we're, you know that we're still doing that. We're still learning about these these vineyards that we're running, and we're we're actually finding you know better bits now that the science is actually helping us even more. What one of the other things that um, I found particularly interesting about um, your Im- impact um, with the Oak Ridge wines um, was after I'd finished working in the Yarra Valley and I was working as a wine buyer, I went along to. Um, uh, one of the Babendum trade days and, and you were leading a masterclass back at the old com downstairs. Yeah. And, um, and I remember looking at some of the wines and I was, comp- I was really sort of quite thrown at the expression. And, and, I, and I think it was um, uh, a 100% whole bunch Pinot or Syrah that I, and I, there were characters in there I'd never seen in a Yarra Valley wine before. I'd barely even scratched the surface of some of the stuff you'd see out of Europe. And I, again, it's one of those other, one of those things that now we sort of, it's not unusual. You know, when Max Allen was on the podcast, he talked about, you know, going to events like Rootstock, for example, and getting so tired of these young winemakers saying, you know, oh, how many of them are doing a hundred percent whole bunch of, but back then that was such a, a strange technique. 
Um, I, yeah. I, I think it, 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 it sort of does speak a bit about the, the experience you had working at Debordley and that willingness to try something different and um, break away from the, the, the norm um, to sort of say, why, why can't we do something like this? Yeah, and look, some, sometimes those things are, you know, in hindsight, um, there, are, there is much about being noticed <laughs> and, um, and putting something out there. But um, again, maturity teaches you that it, it, it's sometimes not what you put in, it's what you leave out that makes all the difference. And mm. so um, that would have been a 100% um, Shiraz um, that you tried then. And, and we, sort of, we, we sort of ran that project for a while, but we, we've actually backed off it a little bit um, because we, we think the wine is better um, having a bit more fruit purity. Mm-hmm. And to use, to, to use a technique, a technique, I think, for, for anything is, um, you know, runs the risk of the wine perhaps becoming a little bit, you know, one-paced in some years. You know, some years it'll work, it'll work brilliantly, but, you know, one of the things we're, we're really having to combat now uh, you know, is climate change, and and we're we're having vintages that are just um, they're, they're not in the playbook. They yep. they they don't they don't match or measure up to anything that we've seen in the past, and um, and so we're having to relearn um, our viticulture and our and I think our winemaking and our approach to to maximise on on quality results. Mm. You know, so. So, you know, in, in those really sort of hot years, you know, we're, we're having to, um, you know, keep the western sides a bit shaggier and a bit more leaf and be more defensive and protective of our fruit. Whereas, you know, when I started in the valley, I mean, you know, you would, you know, as soon as you could, you'd be pulling leaves out and opening canopies up because mm. you were more worried about disease. Mm-hmm. So things have changed really quite dramatically over three decades. And so you have to you have to keep thinking your way through these things. I think as soon as you um, you put the cue in the rack and you think you've actually done it and made it, you're probably um, you, you, you're part of history. You you know you, you you're dead. And um, you're a fossil. <laughs> you know. So you know we we we're still continuing to to modify how we approach these things, and we think we're we're getting better results out of it. Yeah, it's unquestionable. I mean, the, the quality of wines over the last 10 years has just been pretty astonishing. Um, but I, and, and I like that sort of more recently, Oak Ridge has been getting quite a bit of attention. Obviously, it's unfortunately something that can't run at the moment, but um, the, the visitor experience, um, which, you know, there, there is stiff competition. The Yarra Valley has been at the forefront of wine tourism for the longest time to, to come out with, um, with, with the offering in the last few years um, and, and to be so well, well regarded and, and be held in the same esteem as some of the top restaurants in the city. It, it really is a testament to the, the faith that has been put in um, to the people who are, who are running Oak Ridge, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Look, Again, there's a there's a very strong, and we we, you know, I'm I'm the fossil of the place. You know, I really am the you know the grumpy old bastard now, 
and you know there, there's a lot of uh, younger fitter you know people that work for us and um, who are quite bright and um, and you know they really do keep things on you know keep us on our toes in a lot of ways because they they you know they do like to push the boundaries with these things so you know we've got a, a strong experimental program of winemaking um, but that that really has been dramatically improved by um, getting the kitchen involved in that as well you know to to solicit their opinion on on various various aspects and and how these wines you know how they work with the food that we we put on the table there so you know because it's got to work you know in, in the end in the end you know wine wine is a you know it's the lubricant for the protein you put on the table mm-hmm. and um it, it's not it's not the feature it's not the hey look at me part of it it's the it's the bit that actually improves the balance and flavor the taste of everything that's presented and that includes the people that you're actually dining with you know it's a you know we're really big on that whole sort of um, notion of um, you know meals are as only as good as the people that are involved um, and the, and you know if you've got good raw materials and you treat it sensitively then you're likely to to produce something really wonderful so so we work with these guys to you know to produce a whole range of wines that really you only get through Celador now um, that you know years ago if you'd said I'd be making you know skin contact Pinot Gris and Sauv Blanc and whatever else then I you know I might have you know jumped in the river myself but um, they they have a place and they work with a lot of the food that we produce as well you know there's a real kind of connection that they seem to have and and you know because we we've moved into you know over a number of years we've been moving into organics and our whole approach to farming has changed you know this has really worked with the, the food side as well and so you know what happens now is when people come and eat at our place they they leave and you know they might have a wander around in the garden and they suddenly see things and they go well i just ate that and i just ate that and i just ate that and and so they they become or they i think the concept is they that they become nourished rather than fed mm-hmm. it's an enriching very experience exactly and you know it's not just putting fuel in the tank it's actually um it's it's good food it's chemical free and it's good for them so um that that's really we think that that's really been a, a turning point for how we do a lot of things look it's something that i kind of um realized um you know i'm, I'm happy to say reasonably early on it's something that I'll, i have said i'm sure before and i probably will say it again uh, at the end of the day we have to think of it like not that we're selling a product, but we are selling an experience and, you know, having that kind of offering on site, that's the best way to control that sort of experiential element, and, and for people to, cause ultimately all we can have is, is experiences. And, and if we can go away, as you say, feeling enriched and, and nourished, not just in terms of body, but also in terms of soul, and you, you, that, that stays with you much longer than a meal or a glass of wine might. 
And if it fosters in them a kind of desire to embrace better things that are going to nourish the body and soul, then, then they've, they've come away with, um, you know, a much better experience than they otherwise would. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's going to be, you know, once we go back to something closer towards normal, cause I'm not sure it'll be ever the same again at the moment. It's hard to see that, but when we, when we get back to opening, um, you know, we've, we've got some fairly, um, well-developed ideas and plans about how, yeah, how it's going to work. And, and hopefully, and hopefully people see... will be going back out, you know, being more appreciative for that experiential element as well. Well, I, I think they'll get a better experience. That's the thing. And, and in the end, that, that's what it's all about. You know, I think the, the days of the, um, you know, the tire kickers that come out to sell the door and really they're just after a bit of entertainment and a free drink. Um, you know, those days are probably over. Give me flashbacks to working in Celador, <laughs> particularly grape grazing. Oh God. <laughs> See, that was one of the, one of the best things I ever did. We, we did grape grazing once as part of Evans and Tate. And I just said, look, um, we've got all these volunteers. We've got all these volunteers here and no one's being paid. If you had to pay them and, and with the repairs that we've had to do to the site here, because it's been completely and utterly trashed, mm. um, how much money would we make out of grape grazing? And they said, oh, we, you know, we wouldn't. We'd, we'd lose, you know, maybe 20 or 30,000. I said, well, you know, this is a business. Um, you, we can't give 20 or $30,000 away no. in a business that, it, that it really is, it, is, it, you, is struggling. You cannot, you cannot think of that as a marketing exercise. No, it was, it was horrendous. And, you know, and I, you, you sort of can't blame anyone for it. I mean, the, the way grape grazing evolved, you know, it just actually made it go backwards. And it was great when it died, I think. I, I think a lot of people in the region might disagree and they'll be, you know, they're listening to this and they shake their heads and go, well, that's not really the reality of it. Well, uh, I think it was, it just became a free for all. And, you know, I don't know if you know some of the stories about, you know, big punch ups happening. In oh yeah. And all oh this. yeah. I worked oh. at Shandon. We, we had thousands of people coming through over that two over the two days. It was just, Oh, mayhem. Awful. Anyway, <laughs> thank, thank goodness that, uh, well, yeah, I mean, Black Saturday obviously put a, put an end to that and, um, thankfully it didn't uh, come back. So, so obviously, you know, it, like the, the quality of people and the quality of experience you get now in the Overly, thankfully is infinitely better. Infinitely different. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. I mean, going back to the Debortley days and those early days on a, on a Friday afternoon, you know, sort of, or round about now, it was like everyone in the wine industry in the valley went to the Yarra Glen Hotel and we would all pile in there and we'd throw down a few jars and, you know, they'd have the meat raffle and whatever else. And then pretty much everyone would split and they'd go into town for the weekend because there was no real kind of community out here, no infrastructure. So, it's, you know, early 90s. You know, when you fast forward to it now, um, you know, it's completely different because there are, uh, you know, people like myself and Flamo and Co who, 
you know, we've got teenagers who finish school and um, there's a real kind of community out here of um, the, you know, the families, winemaking families. It's just, it's grown and grown and grown. It was, um, you know, it was so quiet out here in the early 90s. And mm. um, again, I remember Weber saying to me way back in the day, saying, oh, you know, in the future, when you drive out here from, uh, from you know, once you pass Lilydale and into Yarraglen, it'll just be vineyards like the Napa Valley, both sides all the way out here, the whole place will be planted. And I said, oh, yeah, bullshit, you know, that won't happen. But, and it, and it, has, it, it hasn't, re- it hasn't to a degree, but, um, but it really has grown dramatically. In, Thankfully, um, yeah, the Yarra Valley hasn't ended up like Marlborough. I remember going there, I think it was in 2009, and was just astonished at the ocean of vineyards of you know pretty much all Sauvignon Blanc I'm so glad that we don't really have any regions like that in Australia yes there are a lot of vineyards in the Yarra Valley um but it's still it's still diverse enough you still there's still enough um uh, 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 you know there are different industries or there's different agricultural products that come out of the Yarra Valley and I think that talks about the the quality of life out there one thing I think we all value is, um, and it's, you know, it's something common to this country, is um, space. We actually value a bit of space. Mm-hmm. And um, and sometimes you may not seem like you use that space for a lot of things, but it's important to have, you know, a bit of space, a bit of room around you, to, you know, and, uh, you know, that room to, to think and do. And... Um, you know, we're pretty lucky in that regard, you know, mm. to be on the, the doorstep of, um, you know, such a, you know, such a big city. And, and, you know, when you, you know what it's like when you drive out here and it's like you, you, you get over the, the hill there at Lilydale and you look down through the hills towards Hillsville. And it's just, it's just such an awesome it part is. of the world yep. that can still do lots and lots and lots of things. Um, as you say, food and wine, um, are big parts of it. So once once the yeah, still- things start to open up, I obviously highly recommend everyone head out to the Yarra Valley. You know, there's there isn't it's no coincidence that I have been fortunate enough to um, welcome a number of very prominent Yarra Valley based wine producers onto the podcast because it is such a, uh, it's a playground for, you know, some of the best quality wines in the country. Um, and obviously thank you very much, Dave, for, uh, being on the show. Um, I'm sure people can check you out on social medias and the Oak Ridge website. Uh, of course, um, support the local producers, uh, as much as possible in the current situation. Um, but yeah, thank you, Dave. I really have appreciated uh, chatting with you. Thanks for having me on. It took you a while. Yeah, we well, there. <laughs> there was that sort of year and a half hiatus, but this situation it presents as challenges, but also as opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a good thing. It's actually um, just as a general thing, it's a really good thing to listen to these um, stories little vignettes on people's lives um, when you're out there pruning. It's a, it's a, it's, it's quite a, a nice way to, to get through a working day, pruning vines and hearing so, people talk about what they do. It, it is a privilege to be able to, to 
chat with so many different people and uh, obviously i i appreciate and and take take advantage of um all the stories yeah awesome thank you dave and looking forward to eventually uh, being able to catch up again in person yeah 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 well you know where we are And thank you for listening to this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And you can find out more about myself on my website, intrepidwino.com. Lots of writing I've done in the past, um, information about the podcast, of course, but also some videos, including a number of tasting videos that I've recorded previously. Uh, And um, follow me on social media at intrepidwino on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, If you enjoy the show, uh, make sure that you subscribe on your listening platform or app of choice. Uh, Lots of different ways to listen. Uh, You can listen on iTunes or the podcasts app for for your iPhone, Uh, Google Podcasts, uh, Player FM, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, lots and lots of different uh, apps you can use. But however you listen, uh, subscribing means that you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, And if you have the opportunity Uh, please do leave a five-star rating and a review just to uh, provide some feedback to the guests who uh, are very generously donating their time to be on the show, but also to potential listeners because uh, I'm very keen to get as many listeners as possible. Uh, You can um, also follow the podcast on uh, Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, You can get in contact with me on thevincast at gmail.com. And if you're interested, please do check out my wine brand, vinointrepido.com and follow it on social media at vinointrepido on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Lots of great guests coming up. Like I said, please be following me on social media for uh, for an announcement soon. But uh, until next time, bye.